Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can find me on Twitter at XBorderTax. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in our D.C. studio for PwC's Global Tax Symposium, our client conference where I'm honored to be joined by Will Morris. Will is PwC's Deputy Global Tax Policy Leader. Prior to joining PwC, Will spent 17 years at General Electric directing GE's Global Tax Policy Program. From 1995 to 1997, Will worked at the IRS, and from 1997 to 2000, worked in the Office of Tax Policy at the U.S. Treasury. Will was appointed chair of the American Chamber of Commerce at the European Union in Brussels, and also chair of the Business and Industry Advisory Committee, or BIAC, to the OECD in Paris. Will, welcome to the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Doug, thanks very much for having me. So before we dive in, one of the things that I think that is very interesting about you is that besides your law and other degrees, Mm -hmm. that you also have a degree in theology. I do. And you're an ordained minister. I am. As part of what church? Uh, The Episcopal Church. The Episcopal. Well, really the Church of England, but let's call it the Episcopal Church. Okay. I'm not sure that I know the difference or how many of our our listeners do, but that might be subject of a second podcast. (laughs) But but one of the things that I think a lot of people in our particular profession are, are sometimes vilified for the type of the work that we do. And, you know, one of the things that I spent a lot of time and you and I've talked about right. in the past is, you know, I, I love this job. I love the riddle that we get to, to, to solve every day with these complex problems and helping our clients really just try to deal with all of the laws and the changes that we're right. talking about. But, you know, really one of the things that I try to do is just make a positive difference in, in people's lives. Sure. And I think that many, if, if people understood kind of who we were outside of work and what we did, that it would go a long way to, for people to understand kind of what people like do in, in, in this line of work. Right. That's actually a really interesting point. I know we're going to talk about um, uh, BEPS and that type of stuff. But just to come back on that point, I think it's really important for people to understand that we actually only live, we can only live one life. Uh, we can't compartmentalize. And I think if we're going to do what we do in tax seriously, we have to see that in a broader context. We are actually really bad at talking about that. You know, we tend to talk in very technical terms. We tend to explain this in terms of, you know, boxes on uh, on whiteboards and that type of stuff. But actually, it's about making business sustainable. It's about, as advisors, helping businesses to continue over the long term. And I think we can do more of that. But that's, as you say, that's uh, that's an issue for another podcast. Absolutely. And it's about doing the right thing. And the clients, the people that I work with and the clients that I work with, we are trying to do the right thing. We're trying to comply with these laws yep. as, as complicated as, as they are. That's right. So let's dive into, this is BEPS 2.0. This is, and this is actually- So I'm, I'm going to wag my finger at you. Oh, right, please. You right All right. We're, um, right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Because um, I think calling this BEPS 2.0 is a real mistake. Um, but because- you know, we're talking about two elements of this. We'll, we'll come back to this in a second. But the reason why, if we call Pillar 1 uh, about BEPS 2.0, which essentially is actually about trying to design a new tax system for, you know, essentially a changing and radically new economy, which is based on digitalization. If we make this about anti-avoidance, which is the message that BEPS sends, then we are going to be about, you know, sort of clamping down on things, uh, about essentially planning for the past. And in fact, what we should be doing 
particularly on pillar one, is planning for the future. So that's why I wag my finger about BEPS 2.0. I love it. I love it. You can wag your finger the entire podcast. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. But just to make sure that, that the listeners understand, so the sure. BEPS is our base erosion and profit shifting. Yep. And we've spent a lot of time over the last 30 plus podcasts talking about things like the anti-tax avoidance directive, right. which generally have gone into what we would call BEPS 1.0, which really were focused on base erosion and profit yep. shifting and CFC rules, deductibility of payments. And there are certainly an element that is a part of this. And do you have an, another name? Because BEPS 2.0 is, is, has got a nice ring to it. Uh, unfortunately, it has far too nice a ring to it. Right. Of course, that's why pe- that's why people are using it. I, I think, you know, we call it, the, you can call it the digitalization of the economy project. I mean, that's essentially what it is. That's really what it is. And, yeah. I, and I think one of the challenges with calling the digitalization of the economy it's is- It's not that, snappy. Right, it's not quite as <laughs> snappy. And it also, I think that, you know, some of our listeners that are outside the digital context are sure. so those that do consumer products or even industrial <clears throat> products or whatever widget makers say, well, these rules aren't intended to apply to them. And I think your your point is, I guess there's really kind of a couple is that, first of all, this is much more than just base erosion. It's fundamental taxing rights is what we're talking about here. Absolutely. And, and then it's not obviously just impactful for people within, for companies and industries that are digital, right? right. This can impact any and all industries. Right. And, you know, I mean, I've learned some really interesting things along the way, just to give you a sort of um, a very small example of that. It turns out that actually these days, premium diapers have sensors embedded in them, which can send information back. So everything is digitalizing. Fantastic. So I didn't have kids, but I'm guessing what that means is you don't need to, to do the smell test. It's an internet of things for diapers. Uh, I, I haven't gone too far into the details. Okay. But, uh, you know, and I'm not a, a, a scientist, but... Uh, no. <laughs> anyway, let's move on from that. Um, so, yeah, let me describe a little about Pillow <laughs> Let me describe a little about Pillow One in a serious way uh, for a second. So the paper which came out uh, back in October... Um, talked about a unified approach for Pillar 1. And Pillar 1 essentially is about the reallocation of income. It, 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 it feeds into, into a concern, into a feeling that for too long, market jurisdictions have not got their fair share. Everything's about fair share, as you know, but their fair share of profit. And therefore, how do we come up with something which allows a reallocation of some of that profit uh, to the market? Um, This is uh, an issue which, as you can imagine, um, thrills some countries because they feel that they have been badly underserved by uh, by the tax system for you know a hundred years. People keep saying that. Um, You know, let's let's take that. Could be sixty years. Okay, whatever. Right. Um, But they feel underserved by that. There are a a bunch of uh, other countries who feel that um, this could really badly impact them because they're they're large. Uh, innovative export economies who stand to lose under almost any measure of profit reallocation. Um, uh, They also feel that part of the issue here was caused by large tech companies, um, which inevitably feeds into the third group of people, um, primarily the US, uh, who feel that this project at least started shape uh, as something which was about US corporations uh, and therefore about the US tax base. So we have a unified approach which tries to pull together three separate strands. And the way that this project started off was, to just take a step back for a second, the OECD uh, over the past couple of years has vastly increased the number of countries which participate uh, in its tax making, mm-hmm. in, in its tax process. So they call this the inclusive framework. So you know, originally it was just the OECD members, round about 35, um, you know, sort of crawling up slowly. When we got into BEPS, BEPS 1.0, um, uh, we're talking about the G20 as well, because the G20 mm-hmm. issued the mandate. So, you know, we're now up to about 45 countries, let us say. Um, but then 
uh, in part because of the activities of NGOs uh, and in particular a, a big conference which took place in, uh, in Ethiopia probably four years ago now. The OECD expanded the range and said anybody who wants to come into this can come into this, you know, so long as they sign up for the, you know, to, to, to follow the rules. So we now have an inclusive framework, which is technically the decision-making body of the OECD, which has upwards of 135 countries. Right. Um, you know, which in a sense is a, a pretty uh, unruly um, grouping to, to try and, you know, come up with one decision on. So when this, when this digitalization process uh, began to take off some, sometime back in 2017 now, um, a smaller group of countries, the G7 to be precise, said, hey, you know, we need to figure out what we can agree on before we let this go out to others. So they came up with three sets of ideas. Um, the first is so-called active user participation, which is an idea which came out of the UK, but was then picked up by the European Commission in the work that they did on digital services taxes mm -hmm. um, you know, back last year. Um, and this essentially is that in the new economy, particularly with tech companies, uh, because of the activities of users in countries, and whether those are users on social media platforms, uh, or whether it relates to, to marketplaces, um, they're creating new value in that marketplace by interacting essentially with the algorithm, with the platform, with the system. Right. And therefore that justifies uh, allocating some profit for those companies to that jurisdiction. However, it doesn't apply outside the digital space. The US said, no, we're not having that. You're ring fencing the digital economy. We've been very clear since 2013 and the beginning of BEPS 1.0 that we're not going to ring fence the digital economy. So we need to take this broader. We need to you know, find a way to, um, uh, to pull in uh, essentially more of these ways in which um, uh, profit can be created in markets and then allocate that. So originally, you know, back in the middle of this year, or actually earlier, uh, back in March, February, March, when the first of these papers came out, they were talking about marketing intangibles. Some, right. people, some people may just about remember that. It seemed like forever ago. It does. Um, but, but they had that idea. And then an, another group of countries, um, uh, and this was uh, really India, who aren't part of the G7, obviously, but, mm. but are a large and important country, uh, and the BRICs do play a role in this, said, no, no, we don't, we don't think either of those ideas works terribly well. What we think we need to do is to tackle the problem which is caused by the PE rules, uh, and effectively, even post-BAPS 1.0, the PE rules being, you know, the bar being set too high. Mm -hmm. So let's, you know, particularly in the, in the digital context where we have remote activity, we need to find a way of creating a, a nexus, a taxable presence. And we're going to do through that through something we call a significant economic presence, which essentially says if you have revenue in a country and you have the most minimal of digital contacts, um, then that's going to be enough to do that. Okay, so that's, that's part one of their idea. And then part two of the idea is having done that, we then need to find a way to allocate you know, income to the country. And we're going to use, um, you know, not quite formula apportionment, but it's twin brother, um, which is fractional apportionment, right. uh, which essentially looks to four factors unless, uh, sorry, three factors, you know, property, payroll, and sales, unless um, you have essentially no presence in the country, so you don't have property and you don't have payroll, then we're going to look to users. And we're going to allocate some of that, you know, we allocate quite a lot of that profit based on users and some of it based on sales. So you get, you, you push quite a lot of income in that way. 
And this is such a dramatic change to how huge. the corporate tax system has worked historically because, and, and we talked a little bit about this when, when Callum Dewar was right. on the podcast, just explaining the concept of the permanent establishment, which generally required some type of presence or activities within the, the particular territory. Now, obviously, with technology sure. and you know, the technology companies, they don't need to have any presence for to, be, to potentially be able to interact. I say they don't right. need to have any presence. The users just get on their computers in a respective territory, right. and there may not be any presence for a particular taxpayer. And then so those those jurisdictions where those their users are being accessed are obviously saying, hey, we think that there's some of that we should get the opportunity to tax a chunk of that pie. That's right. And the historic definitions under permanent establishment just don't work here. No, that's right. And that's why, come, coming back to my finger wagging, uh, why BEPS 2.0, at least for Pillar 1, is the, is the wrong way to think about this. Because there is clearly an issue which needs to be solved. I mean, the, the shape of business is changing. The way that we, we've defined tax bases and collected tax no longer works right. uh, in many settings. And therefore, how do we design a system uh, which enables governments to collect an appropriate amount of revenue. Who knows what appropriate means, but an appropriate amount of revenue, but in a way which doesn't inhibit growth, in a way which continues, you know, the, the huge, the huge, huge, huge changes that have taken place uh, over the past 20 years. I link people back, and this is ancient history at this point, um, but back in 1997, the OECD got together, uh, and they, with a group of countries, produced something called the Ottawa um, Principles, which essentially look at how... Uh, electronic e-commerce as it was back then remember that i do um uh, how e-commerce should be taxed uh, and the answer is um you know not in a distortive way uh, and not in a way which prevented that from growing up and those are still good principles today but if we treat this as an anti-avoidance thing we're going to do it in, a, in the wrong way almost certainly so so let's unpack a little bit of that with with pillar one sure. so so Talk a little bit about, about what the OECD's proposal, and you had mentioned, I think it's 134, 135 countries right. that have now theoretically signed on to this, or, or maybe you can explain that, yeah. and, and what, what the proposal is, and then how those countries, quote-unquote, sign on to, to, to these various changes. Sure. So um, it has proved, and is still proving difficult, um, to get complete agreement amongst the countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was in Paris a week and a half ago uh, at a day and a half uh, public consultation on, on Pillar 1 all aspects of Pillar 1. And it was clear from that that, you know, businesses do not agree amongst themselves. And there are a couple of things that got thrown in, you know, in particular the scope issues, consumer facing, which we can come back to, mm -hmm. um, you know, which has split the business community. It is equally clear that those divisions, however, remain um, uh, amongst governments as well. Um, and whether it's small versus large, whether it's developed versus developing, um, you know, whether it's market versus, you know, capital exporters, mm -hmm. all of those issues are still there. Uh, and there is no, there, at least now, there's no resolution of that. Uh, and they need to do that. But, but so this document, I mean, the document that I'm sort of currently pointing at um, uh, in relation to Pillar 1 is a secretariat proposal. So it is the, the officials at the OECD have put this out as a way of trying to move the ball forward. It does not bind any of the countries who are involved in this process at mm -hmm. the moment. Uh, they do need to come to a conclusion fairly soon. One of the interesting interactions here is between the G20, which is uh, actually 19 wealthy countries, uh, and the EU, um, uh, but you know, between the G20 and the OECD, because the G20 has said from the beginning and continues to say they reiterated this in a communique which came out in Washington um, in the middle of October, uh, and then uh, at, a, uh, at a meeting that I was at in uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia is taking over the presidency of the G20 mm -hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago. They reiterated a timetable which said, we need to agree the architecture 
of this, i.e. The, you know, the major parts of the work program, by the end of January. Uh, and then by the end of 2020, by which they really mean September of 2020, we need to have a final consensus agreement uh, amongst the countries. And you look at the scope of this and you think, wow. that is impossible. Um, or very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Let me be optimistic for a moment. Um, but, you know, that, that's going to be really hard. So, so we have this document. And just uh, as an aside, we, we did say the same thing. If you probably go back and record or listen to one of the podcasts on the multilateral instrument yes. as well, and said there's no way we there are all these jurisdictions. Right. I think, in fact, we even said that about the anti-tax avoidance directive in Europe. There's no way all 28 member states. So they've continued to at least prove me wrong. I say they, the, the countries that have right. been able to organize themselves and get these laws passed. I think there are bigger divisions here because there's more money at stake okay. and, and it's real money this is not money moving from taxpayers to countries this is money moving between countries um, and i think that that does make a difference now that's not to say they can't do it or well, they certainly that they can't do it at a very high level mm -hmm. anyway so so what they what they talk about in this document the, the so-called unified approach they have three terms of art i guess uh, amount a amount b and amount c not not the most imaginative of names um but amount A essentially is pure reallocation of profit. Uh, and they are very clear that this has nothing to do with the arm's length standard, absolutely nothing. This is a formulaic um, reallocation of a certain amount of income um, from effectively one jurisdiction to another, or put slightly more technically, from one part of a group to another, mm -hmm. uh, obviously. And um, one of the things uh, about this provision is that uh, they, they confusingly talk about it, uh, and this is a problem which, again, I've pointed out to them. Um, they talk about these things almost by way of analogy as residual profit and routine profit. They are neither of those. Mm -hmm. They are absolutely neither of those. And you scramble a transfer pricing person's brain when you start talking about those terms. So actually, it would be helpful to talk about something else. Um, but So they talk about this reallocation of residual profit. In fact, what it is is uh, above a certain threshold, and they, haven't, they have not said what the threshold would be. One of the things that people have talked about is maybe it's 10% of off, off margin, uh, and then 10% of any amount above that is available for reallocation, and then you split it up amongst the countries in which, um, uh, in which essentially revenue is, uh, is generated. The so-called 10-10 approach. So that's, a ten, that's a 10 and 10 approach, and you can do it all sorts of ways. You can do mm -hmm. 20 and 20. You mm -hmm. can... But it doesn't have to be off-margin. Um, some people say that's that's the wrong measure. Some people have talked about ROI, for example. Uh, other other people have talked about other types of measures. But that's the idea. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you take a cutoff where people are earning above routine returns, super returns, excess return. You know, all of these terms get thrown about, mm -hmm. uh, and you then reallocate some of that. So that's amount A. Uh, amount B. Um, uh, which again is talked about as routine profit, is not in fact routine profit. Again, it's another formulaic uh, application to some measure, uh, whether it's profit, whether it's revenue. Um, again, currently unclear. Uh, and essentially that is meant to take some of the difficulties out of, out of the transfer pricing system by saying, look, if you have basic um, distribution and marketing functions in a country, then you know X, where X is, I don't know, 2.5% of sales. I don't know. We don't know again right. what the number is. Mm -hmm. uh, will be allocated automatically to that market. Um, now, you know, in a sense, um, that makes sense. Taxpayers, at least when they first saw these businesses, when they first saw it, said, hey, this could be good because this could actually give us certainty as to what the amount is. The more that people have dug into it, um, the more uh, people have become concerned about it. Um, because think of this. I mean, there are any number of ways of thinking about this. This immediately becomes a flaw. 
um, F-L-O-O-R. Yeah, floor. Um, yeah, <laughs> <floor>. <laughs> as opposed to a ceiling. Right. Um, this becomes a floor upon which people can then you know, build additional transfer pricing claims. Because the other thing to bear in mind is that amount C uh, essentially is, is full transfer pricing. It's fully caffeinated transfer mm -hmm. pricing, uh, as we know and love it. Um, and that would be for anything in excess of routine marketing and distribution functions. Now, there are all sorts of definitional issues, landmines, all over this project. That obviously is one of them. Um, so, you know, what is the difference between, you know, very basic routine marketing distribution? Originally, they were saying LRD, you know, limited risk distributors. They took the language out because they thought that was pejorative. Um, but now they're left having to define what basic marketing and uh, distribution functions are. So anything above that could get another, it could get a, an additional return. So that gives you an incentive in a way to say, that's great, we'll take the fixed return, but then, you know, we'll, we're going to argue that you have more activity on top of mm -hmm. that. Um, there, are, there are big issues as to what that number would be. Um, it may well differ from industry to industry. It may well differ from region to region. You look at what the Australian Taxation Office has done, for example, in relation to its safe harbors. It has a number of industry ranges. Um, and as our listeners who know, will know who your listeners, I should say, um, who've, who've looked at this before, those ranges are pretty high. Mm -hmm. um, so again, how do you know, and all of these issues come together and how do we get international agreement on this? Because if there are going to be winners, they're almost certainly going to be losers and they won't be the businesses involved, at least not as far as pillar one is concerned. So we have these three things. We have amount A, pure reallocation, not arm's length uh, at all. We have amount B, um, which is meant to approximate to arm's length, but is actually formulaic. And then we have amount C, which is, which is full transfer pricing. How do those three interact? Mm -hmm. What if A, essentially, because A is, you know, whether or not you're in a country, um, you know, you can be a remote presence for amount A. It's simply that you get revenue, you generate revenue in that country, even without a physical presence. But you can also still pay amount A if you have a physical presence. So you can be subject to amounts A and amount C, uh, and amounts B, obviously. Um, there could well be overlap between that. You could be taxing the same profits at least twice uh, inside of that. There is actually a way, depending on exactly on how amounts B and C work out, where you could be taxing the same profit three times. Right. You need to eliminate the overlaps between those. But how that gets done is very unclear. What's the basis upon which you, you look at the amount A amount? Some people are talking about using financial accounts. We'll come to Pillar 2 in a second, but you know the, the, the comment letters on Pillar 2 um, have gone in now. Mm -hmm. um, there'll be a public consultation in early December. One of the things that has become very clear is that financial accounts, um, well, they're essentially meant to be an economic sna snapshot of the health of the company at a point in time. They are not meant to be used for tax, right? Uh, essentially. And therefore, you know, when you come to, okay, well, you know, what eliminations do we need to make? How do we, you know, what do we do about timing difference? All of those issues come up again. But then you can have mismatches between the amounts which are being measured under amount A and then again under amount B and C. So there are some enormously complex interactions, which, come, which brings us back again to this timeline issue, which is how the heck are we going to be able to sort any of this stuff out um, by you know, sort of middle to late next year. Right. And those of us that practice U.S. tax, one of the things that I think is, is really interesting was over you know, with you a, a few weeks ago at our Global Tax Symposium in Europe. <clears throat> The, the complexities associated, just for example, with the foreign tax credit, right, sure. which is the mechanism that the U.S. has chosen to avoid double taxation on base differences, timing differences. Right. It's just enormous complexity, and we have decades, effectively, of 
regulations and then case law and other precedents. Right. And just the, the complexity is absolutely enormous. And, you know, one of the things that Pascal had said at, at R was like, well, they wanted to keep the compliance simple on both pillar one and pillar two and trying to manage double taxation. And most of the, the few of us that practice U.S. tax in the audience, I think, chuckled. Actually, I think many did. But just like, wow, it sounds good. But we know that the complexities of trying to manage double taxation in, in these types of environments is really, really difficult. Well, right. And, uh, and, you know, and that's when you have a relatively straightforward, I mean, relatively straightforward <laughs> stream which comes up, you know, a series of chains. I mean, put, put aside, um, you know, some of the issues around CFCs. And, sure. You know, to a certain extent, you know, we've begun to get away from that. We're going to have to get right back in it. Because, again, if you look at this, okay, so we're reallocating. So, so where does that income come from? That's point number one. Where does the income come from? Does it come from the headquarters company? Uh, does it come from all the profitable companies in the group? Does it come from the IP holding company? Um, so, you know, first is the, the question of where the income comes from. Then there's a the question of who pays the tax and exactly how that happens. And then there's a question, where does a tax credit come back to? Mm -hmm. uh, indeed, is there a credit? Do we do this through correlative adjustments, which is a transfer pricing uh, type of concept? You know, presumably, for the purpose of the accounts or nothing else, the tax has to show up somewhere, right? Right. Um, again, how do we do that? You know, I think we are so close to the beginning of this uh, rather than the end of it. Right, because we we like we don't know what the starting point is, sure. right? And that's really the question is is what what accounts do you use for right. the starting point? One of the other things that I just want to mention for for listeners is that the 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 document provides that it's really only supposed to apply to consumer facing businesses, right? And, what does that really mean? I think, you know, we, we've talked about that in the, in the past. Sure. It's like, how is that, how will that be defined, um, particularly in different industries and will there be carve out for, for certain industries? One of the other things that I find very interesting and I've gotten some questions from clients is like, well, okay, if you don't have a taxable presence, how do you actually remit the tax? Right. How? Um, and then also, if there's non-compliance, how does a particular territory jurisdiction go after that taxpayer? Sure. I think for, for those of us in international tax, the way that's typically been dealt with in the past is through withholding taxes, yep. right? So in other words, like if you're making a payment out of a particular country that you're required, that, that payor is required to withhold because the payee may not have a taxable presence. And so that is the mechanism by which that, that territory or that jurisdiction collects that tax. That's a lot different in, in this in what we're talking about. Oh, sure. And I mean, you know, once you're talking about withholding taxes, um, you know, you're already a step away from profits taxes. Um, right. Probably quite a large step away. Uh, and, it, you know, all of those issues are enormously complex. Uh, and, you know, trying to get agreement on those is going to be it's going to be interesting. Were there any general themes before we moved to, to Pillar 2 sure. when you had mentioned that, that you were in Paris for, for the comment period? And I was following very closely right. on, on Twitter. It's fascinating, um, particularly some of the different insights from, from people within industries. Oh, yeah. And then even just insights with people within similar industries yeah. that don't necessarily agree on, on a lot of these things. No. But well, I mean, any broad themes? Yeah. I mean, so coming back to the question that you raised about consumer facing, uh, what the language actually in the document says is uh, highly digitalized and consumer facing. But there's a question as to whether that's a, con you know, a meaningful conjunction um, or, or is actually the disjunction in there. Um, so it's highly digitalized and consumer facing, which might not be highly digitalized. Uh, we don't know. I mean, it's a couple of words and um, uh, we're probably applying, we're, we're, we're putting more weight on those terms than, than currently they can, they can probably bear. That said, uh, as you can imagine, it was a subject of, of considerable interest. Uh, and there are, the probably were at least three groups of, uh, of businesses there. 
Um, firstly, there were those who were absolutely thrilled that they did not appear to be consumer-facing right. uh, and would very much like to stay in that position. Um, there was a group equally who clearly are consumer-facing and or highly digitalized and were probably less thrilled about being in that position. And then there's a bunch of people in the middle who said, what are we? Right. Uh, and you know, actually, realistically, are we half of one thing and, and half of another? I think I probably used this um, with you before, but uh, when this document first came out, I was speaking to to somebody from a foreign government, and they said, give me an example of this. I mean, you know, exactly how does this work? Because, you know, one of the issues is segmentation, and, you know, how do we look at this? Um, do we have to segment profit by line of business? Do we have to do it, you know, by region? And actually, it turns out that there's a third possibility. So on consumer-facing, he said, okay, let's take an auto company. Um, so you have an auto company which, you know, produces cars. Um, they sell to independent dealers. Independent dealers sell to members of the public. That is consumer-facing, even though the car, the auto manufacturer, does not sell to the, you know, to the to the public. That's consumer-facing, so that has to be brought in. On the other hand, they also produce cars, which they sell to to, to leasing companies, uh, which provide fleet services for businesses, um, and you know those are not consumer-facing. So you may well actually have to segment inside, you know, exactly the same business in a way that you would never have done before. Right. And then that goes back to the accounting point, like the, the start, like how do you how do you go about doing that segmentation right. of what is the starting point for, right. for the account? And, and what level of audit assurance do you need inside of that? And you need to do that by country. And then to the point that you were making earlier about, I mean, just, sorry, just now, about, okay, well, how do you do that in a case where you have no presence in a country? Well, one of the things that got talked about uh, at the consultation was this European idea, or rather it came out of the uh, Common Corporate Consolidated Tax Base Project, originally of one-stop shop, um, it's something which exists in the in the VAT area in relation to electronic sales. It's called modified one-stop shop, but essentially it is you know one face to the taxpayer that the home country jurisdiction or wherever you register deals with all of the other countries. That may work for VAT. Actually, I'm sorry, it does work for VAT. Mm. Um, but when you're talking about income taxes, you're talking about you know much more complexity, and you're talking about a whole lot more revenue in some cases. Uh, it is it seems less likely that countries might give that up. So again, how do you manage that? So let's move on to, to, to pillar two. Right. And this is something that's fascinating to me is, you know, the, when the U.S. came up with their global intangible low taxed income and we have wasted a lot of brain cells on the cross-border tax talks podcast talking about guilty yep. and what just kind of an interesting <clears throat> regime it was as it came out. And now, you know, a couple years in, we've kind of digested it and are getting more familiar with it. Right. And now the OECD has jumped on the back and it said, all right, well, the U.S. has done a minimum tax. We should consider, right. you know, suggesting a minimum tax for 134 of these 135 countries. Right which as, as I start to think about the, the tiers of entities and any number of the clients and structures and the tiers of jurisdictions that have resulted from acquisitions and any number of reasons, just starts to make my brain hurt to think about how this minimum tax could apply right. on multi-levels. And I know that's just one aspect of Pillar 2, but tell us a little bit about Pillar 2. Yeah, so I mean, to, to come back to that point, which I think is a really important one, there is a sort of mind-blowing aspect to this. I, I stood up at the uh, consultation towards the end of, uh, the first day and you know made a plea for taking an incremental approach because I said guys everything we've heard today just blows our you know it blows people's brains it is impossible to uh, to comprehend so you know I think that we do uh, we do need to think about that aspect and uh, with 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 pillar two um, you know th there's actually more good news because this is not just um, uh, you know growing out of the US experience with with guilty it's also growing out of the US experience with beat Right, uh, and both guilty and beat um, are being held up by the international community as a reason 
for doing this project. It sort of opened the door uh, on doing that. Um, so uh, I, I think what's what's clear from the document which came out uh, in this case um, in, a lo- uh, in November, mm-hmm. uh, and th- which will be the consultation on um, uh, in, in mid-December, uh, is that they are less far along in their thinking on this than they are in relation to, um, to Pillar 1. Um, now, it, it's, it's interesting because the, the main proponents of this um, are clearly not the U.S. Um, the U.S. has a big stake in this. Uh, indeed, the OECD has hired people from the IRS uh, who worked on Guilty to come and explain uh, mint taxes to them. But the, the biggest proponents of this are European countries, particularly Germany and France, who do not have experience uh, of these types of taxes. Um, and to a certain extent, that enables you to talk about it more conceptually. Uh, obviously, the disadvantage is you have less experience of it, uh, and therefore some of the discussion about this um, uh, again, misses, misses some of the nuances. Um, so what we see in, in this document essentially is uh, uh, they're asking more questions. They've taken the work program from the middle of this year and they said, okay, here are things we need to, to dig down on more, which principally um, accounting issues. Um, uh, you know, how, can we, how can we use the accounts uh, to do this uh, are, you know, is the biggest issue. But there are also issues around blending, um, which in, you know, again, in guilty terms is how do you work out the ETR? Uh, and do you do that on a, uh, an aggregate basis or rest-of-the-world basis, as Guilty does, uh, or do you do it on a jurisdictional basis? Or, heaven forbid, do you do it on, a, on an entity-by-entity basis, which really would be uh, difficult. Right. Um, uh, and then the final question is, do you have carve-outs from this, in the same way that there are questions about carve-outs uh, in Pillar 1? And, um, you know, the, the, the comment letters have now gone in on this. Um, uh, I think, I mean, certainly from those that I've seen, um, you know, there are relatively clear answers on accounting, you know, you might be able to base it on the financial accounts, but you'd then have to do a lot of work. I mean, a huge amount of work. Now, that may still be better than coming up with a separate new set of tax calculations, you know, a new tax system for working that out. But but financial accounts are not the easy way out of this. It, 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 they may be a simple starting point, but then you're going to have to do a lot. And actually, you know, one of the interesting things about this is we always treat these as tax projects, and we always talk about them inside the tax box. But actually, financial statements serve a, a, a much different purpose and for a much different community, primarily for the investment community, um, but, but also beyond that. And actually, if we're going to change them, uh, essentially, by requiring tax changes to be made to the financial accounts, what's that going to do with the status for financial accounts for, you know, for investors, uh, for other folks who are interested in this? So, you know, so that's, that's one of the points that we need to bear in mind. The, the, the blending stuff is, uh, is also interesting because, you know, one of the reasons why the U.S. pulled back from what had originally been, uh, you know, in the earlier tax reform proposals uh, per country mm-hmm. um, limitation was mostly because of complexity. Um, right. uh, but, you know, the, there are other things around that as well, which is, you know, mathematically, um, according to the, the economists, um, you can have a per country rate at, let us say, 10 uh, and to get the mathematical equivalent, which is to say the company, the group, ends up paying the same amount uh, of tax, um, you know, on a worldwide basis, um, you have a global rate of 15% or a rest of the world rate of 15%. You know, mathematically, there's that. There is apparently new OECD research, we haven't seen it, which actually says the gap is much larger than that. It's maybe 7.5 or 8%. Hmm. 8%. Now, you know, who knows about that? But, you know, there are a bunch of countries that want this jurisdictional per-country approach because... This for them has, is no longer about does the company pay a minimum amount of tax. It's do they pay their tax in the right place, which put slightly differently is do they pay their tax to us. Um, 
And, you know, so these issues, again, are also sloshing around uh, inside of that. There are then interesting EU law issues about which I'm no expert, just to be very clear. But, you know, obviously, I know people who are experts. Right. Uh, and they say that there are potential problems uh, with aspects of this, particularly inside the EU. Uh, and it's clear that some of the problem countries um, for some of the proponents of this are inside the EU. So there are those issues as well. Um, uh, there are um, actually quite a lot of EU countries, it turns out, who are not terribly keen uh, on the minimum taxes. Um, and that's just on the income inclusion side of it. So that's just on the min tax side of this. Then we have the other side, which is the, the so-called undertax payments, mm-hmm. or essentially the denial of deductions, which could bring you back, uh, you know, it could be denial of deductions, but again, it could be withholding. Now, that obviously is very attractive to um, a number of countries, including those without much tax authority infrastructure, for whom withholding is you know, a much easier way of doing it right. um, than trying to work out. But also, again, it comes out to, you know, who is the country that gets the tax here? So this is, this is much less now about companies paying, you know, the right amount of tax overall or a minimum amount of tax overall. It's who they pay it to. Uh, and that then, this also then becomes, you know, a question of self-interest. Um, and if you look at Pillar 1, which is about reallocation, and you look at Pillar 2, which essentially is about holding on to the income, those two clash. Right. And what is the spe- any speculation on how to manage the double tax issue? And again, maybe this is just because I'm obsessed with the foreign tax credit and spent right. like a huge portion of my career really studying and, yep. you know, doing lots of 11, corporate 1118s, which is the tax return for yep. foreign tax credits. And then spending the last couple of years figuring out how guilty and beat and all these things impact the foreign tax credit. And the complexity is just absolutely uh, enormous. Yep. And then, and and we, and I also think about, you know, w- when I was doing compliance, that just from a the starting point from a U.S. is you got local statutory, and right. then you take that to U.S. GAAP, and then you take that. We would try to figure out earnings and profits. Well, now with guilty, we now need to do a third kind of leg of that to get to U.S. taxable income, right. and just. It's just very, very complicated. Any speculation on on how they might try to deal with the, the double taxation issues, or is it is it foreign tax credit, or is that- well, okay. So, so they always they, they talk about two elements to, to to disputes. The first is dispute resolution, which we all know and love, which is you know MAP procedures and people talk about mandatory binding arbitration. But dispute prevention is equally important. The dispute prevention is about getting the rules right, um, but not just getting them right, also getting them clear and making sure that there's agreement between countries. So that comes back to issues uh, like the accounts. And again, to just take another angle, an obvious angle on that, um, some countries use IFRS. Obviously, we use US GAAP. There's Japanese GAAP. There are other GAAPs. Um, you know, do those completely mesh up? No. I mean, th- there has been some convergence, but, but not complete by any manner of means. So you know, trying to figure out those interrelationships uh, and then trying to figure out what you do about deferred items, you know, the timing issues that we discussed earlier. It's, it's getting all of those details right. Uh, and then you can move into, okay, so we can't agree on that, um, but, but, you know, so where does, the, where, does the tax, you know, where does the tax lie? What do we do about correlative adjustments? All of those types of things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's taking time to get, to get those details right. That will take a lot of time uh, amongst various countries. If that doesn't work out, then yes, on the back end, uh, to be sure, we're going to need to have a much, much better map procedure Mm -hmm. um, because it's still possible for countries, including countries which honestly should know better, um, to back out of map proceedings. Um, So we need to tighten up on that bit, and that probably means that there needs to be a sanction like uh, mandatory binding arbitration, except because we know some countries don't like that concept. We have to come up with some other language. 
But that's going to be really important. Uh, and there's always the danger that that gets sort of pushed to, you know, to use a colloquial U.S. term for a second, you know, the second tax bill, um, which, right. never, which never happens. Uh, and that cannot be the outcome here because otherwise the uncertainty, um, which this is going to cause taxpayers and, the, you know, the sort of the effects that that's going to have on, uh, on investment planning are going to be absolutely enormous. So, Will, what do you think? We're still very early days. I I think that you've mentioned that the time, the time frame and timeline that the OECD set up is is, doesn't seem overly realistic, although we mentioned that some of the prior timelines. But this is just even more of a transformative change. It's it's a political timeline, to be clear. It's not a technical timeline. And I understand why it's a political timeline, but that doesn't help us on the technical side. Okay, so so predictions. the OECD has been set a task, and they're not going to fail in that task. And that task is to produce a consensus agreement by the end of 2020. They will do that. But as we know from BEPS, there are different types of consensus agreements. There can be very detailed ones, which is probably what the anti-hybrid stuff was, for example, right. the anti-hybrid rules were. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally, there can be uh, not quite agreements to disagree. But if you look at what happened with CFCs uh, in BEPS, uh, there was much closer to that. So you know, it is possible that we get uh, a very high-level agreement um, which doesn't fill in the details below that. Um, if they stop at that point, then we're in trouble um, because that allows countries essentially to, to join the dots in any way that they wish uh, below that. My hope, my hope is that we get far enough in 2020 that the G20 says, great job, guys. Um, now go away and work out the details for the next two years. Um, that, you know, that would be, I think, the, the best outcome. Uh, is that is that the only outcome? No, unfortunately, it isn't. And I still, I, you know, I still think the counterfactual is worse, um, which is that without this agreement, countries go off and do what the heck they like. And we're already seeing a little bit of that. Th- that's already. right, and not just in not just with digital services taxes, but you know, lowering PE thresholds. Um, you know, honestly, one of the things which happened during BAPS and which continues to accelerate is that the moment that you know tax inspectors see people at the OECD talking about something, they start building that into their audits. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even require the law to change. It doesn't really even require agreement. You know, people will start doing that. So that's a real possibility. So we need to work towards this. Um, but, you know, equally, because there is so much at stake and because, as I said, you know, if, if one country wins, then likely another country has to lose. There really does have to be agreement on this. Otherwise, countries are going to say, yeah, of course we sign up to that but they'll try and pull back on it. So I hope that we get to a position, you know, by September, October of next year, where there has been enough progress made that people are then prepared, you know, the governments are then prepared to give it, you know, two years to, um, to uh, you know, to dig down on the details, to really work out what those details are. But that's not a given. Uh, you know, there are other players in this other than just governments and business. The, the NGO community is vastly influential in this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and they want this quicker than that. Um, and, you know, they don't have patience with, um, with discussions about details, um, about compliance burdens or anything like that. They regard that as time-wasting, essentially, foot-dragging. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not completely clear. That's where I hope we get to it. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it at that, Will. I, I, I think the other thing that I would say, and as we've talked to clients and I've worked with you with a number of taxpayers and clients, yeah. is it's really important for people to get involved as part of this process. And that's been fascinating for me as a kind of an outside the beltway guy and somebody who hasn't spent a lot of time in policy is, is that these policymakers around the globe are interested in hearing from practitioners, from taxpayers, right. and, and from people about this. Right. And I mean, you know, one point on that, Doug, um, it's... Again, a lot of people look at this and they go, oh, this is too complicated, or this can't work. Um, I think for people to get effectively involved, they need to understand how it affects them. 
uh, and therefore they do need to pay attention to these rules. And even when they're vague, you know, try and figure out at least at a, at a higher level what the puts and takes are. And that will then enable them to engage much more effectively in this process. But yeah, absolutely. They have to be involved at the OECD level. They have to be involved with national governments. Um, they really have to dig down into the stuff because something is going to happen. It really is. All right. Well, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks again to Will Morris, PwC's Deputy Global Tax Policy Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.